Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark, your host and partner in crime for the next half an hour or so. Thank you for joining me once again. It's great to have you back. Thanks also go to our new Patreon supporters. We have Lindsay Day and Erica Gray. I hope you're both enjoying the bonus episodes and exclusive competitions we have over on our Patreon page. Um, And if you don't currently support the show through Patreon, please do have a think about joining this club. We've just launched our December competition over there and we really do have a great prize up for grabs. We have a Cadbury's Christmas chocolate hamper to give away, courtesy of our friends at Cadbury's, and also a copy of Michaela McCollum's brand new book, You'll Never See Daylight Again, which I've just finished listening to on Audible and can highly recommend. Now, you might remember Michaela from a previous episode. She was the subject, along with her cohort, Melissa Reed, of Season 2, Episode 18, an episode entitled The Peru 2. Um, Michaela's book details her audacious attempt to smuggle £1.5 million worth of cocaine out of Peru, um, and it really is a no-holds-barred account, uh, filled with tales of her childhood during the Troubles in Northern Ireland and the monumental drug benders that she went on in the run-up to her incarceration. I did think about contacting Michaela to get a couple of signed copies of the book, which we've done with other true crime authors in the past and we've been successful with, Um, but on this occasion I thought better of it because I remember the episode we did and I remember calling her a basic bitch. So uh, if you are lucky enough to win the competition, you're going to have to make do with an unsigned copy of the book. Um... But there you have it. So to be in with a chance of winning, all you have to do is become a patron of the show by the 8th of December. Um, Just head to patreon.com forward slash seeing red podcast and the lucky winner will be announced on the 9th of December and we'll be posting your goodies to you on the 10th of December. So you'll get them in time for Christmas wherever you live in the world. So you might be forgiven for failing to remember that we have gone global this season because I have only featured one case from outside the UK so far, which was Jeffrey Epstein. And Christ, that is a case that just will not go away. I'm not sure if you've seen the Prince Andrew documentary on that one yet. Uh, interview rather. Um, anyway, so my intention was always to have a heavy bias towards the UK still, but I didn't think there would be a gap of two months between Epstein and today's case, which takes place in the US state of Virginia, but there we go. Thanks also finally to everybody who has been in touch with suggestions for future cases. These have all been added to the list, so watch this space. And so many of you get in touch with us when you have a personal connection to a case, so we really, really do appreciate that. Um, so thank you. Um, the backdrop for today's episode then is Smith Mountain Lake, a 33 square mile man-made reservoir in the US state of Virginia. The lake was built in the 1960s, in an area dominated by tobacco farms and other agriculture. The limited early residential developments around the lake consisted largely of small trailer parks and modest houses. However, the mid-80s saw steady residential growth, with the construction of increasingly upscale lakefront homes, condominiums and communities centred on golf courses. By the late 90s, The number and affluence of the new residents had resulted in the construction of new retail and commercial developments all around the lake. And one such development was Bridgewater Plaza, a retail and leisure complex in a small town northeast of the lake called Moneta. 
And it is here, at Bridgewater Plaza in Moneta, that our story unfolds. It was an early start for Alison Parker on Wednesday the 26th of August in 2015. But then it always was. Her job as a news correspondent for the popular WDBJ breakfast show Morning dictated that she be camera ready for 6am from locations across Virginia. Alison loved her job, and her all-American looks blonde hair, big smile and flawless skin, made her popular with viewers. But it wasn't just her looks that got her noticed. She was empathetic, kind and she took her work seriously, championing local causes and bringing attention to difficult subjects affecting the communities of Virginia. She was your typical girl next door. And God do we love a cliche on this show, but with Alison it was true. She was likeable and down to earth and warm, and at 24 she had her whole life and career ahead of her. She was destined to go far. On this particular morning, Alison got ready for work at the home she shared with her boyfriend Chris Hurst, a fellow reporter at the station. As she prepared to leave the house, Chris said, have a great day, and Alison responded by saying, I will, good night sweet boy. Obviously it would have been the early hours of the morning, just in case you're thinking why she's saying good night before she leaves for work. Alison made her way to the WDBJ studios in Roanoke. When she arrived, she met with her morning show colleagues for a pre-production meeting. In the meeting was Melissa Ott, producer of the show. Melissa was engaged to 27-year-old cameraman Adam Ward, who also worked at the station. Alison and Adam were close, he was her cameraman, but also her friend, and he accompanied her on all of her live outside broadcasts. The two worked well together and were popular with colleagues. It was Melissa's last day working on the show that morning. She had landed a job in Charlotte in North Carolina and Adam, her fiancé of just a few months, would be joining her there in the coming weeks. Alison had brought Melissa a bouquet of flowers to wish her well in a new job and this thoughtful gesture was typical of Alison. The show's anchor had brought in a cake and there was almost a celebratory atmosphere in the studio that morning. Although everyone would be sad to see Melissa go, WDBJ offered limited career opportunities and everyone was happy for her. Now, despite the rather shit name, WDBJ is a CBS-affiliated television station which is licensed to the Roanoke area in Virginia. So, it's very much a regional outfit rather than a big-scale national operation, but it does serve over 92,000 households in the state, and consequently, Alison was something of a local celebrity. The station was not the slick operation of its national counterparts, however, and had recently been fined $325,000 for a story which aired on the network's 6pm newscast in July 2012. The report, which centred on a former female porn star turned volunteer emergency medical technician for a Roanoke area rescue squad, featured a brief image from an adult website showing a hand stroking an unblurred erect penis. I mean, this isn't necessarily relevant to today's story, but it did make me laugh. And it does actually set a bit of context for later. Uh, Well, that's my excuse anyway, and I'm going to stick to it. After the pre-production meeting, Alison and Adam made their way to Bridgewater Plaza. Meeting them there would be local businesswoman Vicky Gardner, who Alison would be interviewing throughout the morning. It was a lovely sunny morning in Moneta when Alison and Adam arrived, and the pair were stood on a decked area outside Bridgewater Plaza with their interview subject Vicky Gardner as they prepared for the live broadcast. 
Alison would conduct the interview with Vicky a number of times throughout the show's three-hour run, and these shows do tend to kind of run on a bit of a loop, don't they? Vicky Gardner was there in her capacity as a representative for the Chamber of Commerce to talk about the 50th anniversary of Smith Mountain Lake. As Alison briefed Vicky on the questions she would be asking her, Adam set up his equipment, checking the lighting and the sound. Alison positioned herself and Vicky against a wooden railing at a slight angle so Adam would be able to capture the stunning view of the lake in the back of the shot. There was no director, no producer or sound engineer with them. This was local TV on a budget. Alison touched up her hair and makeup and waited for her cue to go live. At 6.45am, Alison's colleagues, who were 25 miles away in WDBJ studio in Roanoke, began to introduce her report. As the director in the gallery cut to Alison, her face lit up the screen with that warm smile that was so familiar to viewers across Virginia. She faced the camera and introduced Vicky Gardner. Although this would be a light-hearted interview, Alison was equally at home with harder-hitting subjects. She had recently presented a series of reports on child abuse. But today's interview would be jovial. No hard-hitting journalism required here. It was simply an excuse to promote tourism in the area. So I'm now going to take you to the scene and talk you through the events as they occurred in real time. After introducing Vicky to the audience back home, Alison begins the interview and asks her about the impact of tourism on the local economy. Adam, the trusty cameraman, pans away from Alison at this point and focuses on Vicky, who is now in full flow gesturing towards the lake behind her. Adam decides to take in a full shot of the lake and pans his camera away from Vicky. As he centres in on this vast man-made reservoir, he drinks in its breathtaking view. The dappled sunlight falls across the lake's still surface. At this hour there is a calm stillness to the water. In a couple of hours' time it will be filled with tourists enjoying the various water sports the lake has to offer. But for now it provides a sense of peace. But this is just the calm before the storm. Out of nowhere a man approaches Alison. His name is Vesta Lee Flanagan II, known professionally as Bryce Williams, and he's holding a Glock 19 9mm pistol in one hand, and his phone, which he's using to record video, in the other. He hovers close by for a moment, pointing the gun directly at Alison. It is literally two feet from her head, but she doesn't notice it. In fact, no one does. Vicky carries on talking, and Alison listens intently while Adam takes in the stunning views of the lake. As Adam pans the camera back towards Alison and Vicky, Flanagan takes a step forward and in a split second, Alison turns away from her subject and faces him. Taking in the full horror of the scene unfolding before her, she opens her mouth and screams. Flanagan fires the gun at Alison. He shoots her in the chest and she screams and runs away from him. He fires at her again. This time he hits her in the head. Her arms are flailing around as she takes what will be her last steps on this earth. Adam's camera is still recording. Vicky is open-mouthed in complete shock. Is this really happening, she asks herself. Flanagan, satisfied he has killed Alison, now turns his attention and the gun towards Adam and shoots him multiple times in the head and torso. He drops the camera as he falls to the floor. With both Alison and Adam now dead, Vicky runs for her life but is shot in the back. 
Falling to the floor, Flanagan attempts to shoot her again, but he is either run out of bullets or his gun is malfunctioning. Vicky plays dead and Flanagan flees the scene. Meanwhile, back in the WDBJ Morning Show studio, Alison's horrified colleague, the show's anchor Kimberly McBroom, addresses the audience. Unsure of exactly what has just gone down, she says just that. She looks concerned, but continues on with the show. There are two hours of live TV to get through. Alison's murder was not captured on Adam's camera. The whole incident is over in seconds, and whilst gunshots and screaming could be heard, it really isn't clear at this point that anyone has been shot. Staff in the WDBJ gallery, including Melissa Ott, the fiancé of Adam Ward, review the footage to try and make sense of what has just happened. When they slow the footage down, it's clear Alison has been shot multiple times. As Adam was behind the camera, it's not clear what's happened to him, but his fiancée Melissa fears the worst. As the camera falls to the floor, they see Flanagan, captured in shot for a brief frame, gun in hand. They recognise him immediately as a former reporter at the station, and WDBJ General Manager Jeffrey Marks passes his name to the county sheriff. Now, I'm not sure exactly what happens next. I'm guessing it would have been absolute chaos in the gallery and indeed the studio. I don't know whether the show was taken off air at this point um, or whether it continued on. I doubt that would be the case, but with live TV, I wouldn't be surprised. Either way, I'm guessing the building would have been on lockdown. Uh, For all they knew, Flanagan was headed for the studio now, intent on carrying out mass murder in his former workplace. So, back to the scene of the shootings. Ambulance crews arrive at Bridgewater Plaza and both Alison and Adam are pronounced dead at the scene having suffered multiple gunshot wounds. Vicky Gardner is airlifted to a nearby hospital where she will go on to be placed in an induced coma before having her kidney and part of her colon removed as doctors battle to save her over the following hours. At 8.23am, an hour and 40 minutes after the murders, Flanagan faxes a 23-page manifesto to ABC News in which he states My name is Bryce Williams. My legal name is Vesta Lee Flanagan II. Referring to a recent mass shooting at a church in Charleston in the state of South Carolina, he goes on to say, Why did I do it? I put down a deposit for a gun on the 19th of June. The church shooting in Charleston happened on the 17th of June. Now, this mass shooting, or the Charleston church shooting as it has since come to be known, was a racially motivated attack in which nine African Americans were killed during a Bible study class at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. The church, one of the oldest black churches in the United States, was influential in its fight for civil rights amongst the African American communities in South Carolina. The perpetrator was a far-right extremist and white supremacist. His name was Dylan Roof. And I probably should mention at this point that Flanagan is black and obviously this racially motivated attack, which happened just two months before his own attack, had affected him deeply. Flanagan goes on to describe how the Charleston church shooting tipped him over the edge. He says, What sent me over the top was the church shooting, and my hollow point bullets have the victim's initials on them. And it's not clear whose initials he's referring to here, Um, but one can assume he is talking about the victims of the Charleston Church shooting rather than the victims of his own shooting. Flanagan continues, and some of this has been redacted by the media, so there are gaps in this quote. As for Dylan Roof, you f***. You want a race war, 
bring it on them white He goes on to say Jehovah spoke to him, telling him to act. Later in the manifesto, Flanagan quotes the Virginia Tech mass killer, Sung Hai Cho, and calls him his boy, and expresses admiration for the Columbine high school killer, saying, Also, I was influenced by Sung Hai Cho. That's my boy right there. He got nearly double the amount that Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold got. Just saying. Flanagan goes on to list a number of grievances in a section of his manifesto he entitles Suicide Note to Friends and Family. He says he has been attacked by black men and white females. He talks about how he was attacked for being gay and black. He says he has suffered racial discrimination, sexual harassment and bullying at work. In his manifesto, he says he encountered nasty racist things whilst working at WDBJ, and that drove him to sue the station. He adds, I marched down to the courthouse and sued WDBJ by myself and they settled. Ha! He continues, I can remember one day in particular, leaving the courthouse, feeling overwhelmed, confused, even some fear. But by golly, I knew I had to fight. They truly fucked with my life and caused an awful chain of events. He even goes on to say he killed his cats in the forest because of them. And I'm assuming he's referring to his former colleagues here. Flanagan says, quote, Hell yeah, I made mistakes, noting that he should not have been so curt with photographers in Roanoke. But you know why I was? The damn news director was a micromanaging tyrant. And he writes, The photogs were out to get me at WDBJ. One went to HR after only working with me one time. The chief photog told his troops to record video of me if I did anything wrong. Flanagan then suggests that, after leaving WDBJ, he was offered a job at a station in Pennsylvania, but that WDBJ persuaded them to rescind the offer. Which is probably true, but for very valid reasons. He says, I got to the point this time around where I wasn't even looking for a job. I don't need to deal with workplace bullies anymore. That is what lawmakers need to focus on. Yes, it will sound like I'm angry. I am. And I have every right to be. But when I leave this earth, the only emotion I want to feel is peace. The church shooting was a tipping point, but my anger has been building steadily. I've been a human powder keg for a while, just waiting to go boom. He chronicles the tough times he's faced, including some financial crashes, and says he used to work as a male escort, but that he is proud of that because he'd made thousands of dollars. He concludes by saying, I truly pull myself up by the bootstraps, but the damage was already done and when someone gets to this point, there is nothing that can be done or said to change their sadness to happiness. It does not work that way. Meds? Nah, it's too much. And then, after the unthinkable happened in Charleston, that was it. Yeah, I'm all fucked up in the head. Now, it's a truly disturbing document, and I've not been able to get a full copy of it, and even if I had been able to, I I don't think I would have wanted to read all of it. Um, But it is clearly the incoherent ramblings of a seriously mentally ill man. After fleeing the scene, Flanagan dumped his own car at a local airport before exchanging it for a vehicle he'd rented a month ago. He posted a video of the shooting to his Facebook account, and also to his Twitter account, an account he had only recently set up, an account which included many childhood photos. He also posted tweets accusing Allison of making racist comments towards him when he worked at WDBJ. 
five hours after the shootings and Flanagan was spotted by Virginia State Police on the Interstate 66 highway but he refused to stop and drove away from an approaching police car. Minutes later he ran the vehicle off the road and crashed. When police approached they found him suffering from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He was taken to hospital but pronounced dead at 1.30pm. So who was Vester Lee Flanagan II? Using the name of Bryce Williams, Flanagan had worked as a TV journalist in several southern states for many years. In March 2012, he was hired at WDBJ, the same Roanoke TV station where his victims worked. Jeffrey Marks, WDBJ's general manager, described Flanagan as unhappy, difficult to work with and always looking for people to say things he could take offence to. He added, Eventually, after many incidents of his anger coming to the fore, we dismissed him. He did not take it well. He said Flanagan had to be escorted by police out of the station when he was fired after less than a year in his post. Emails and letters sent to Flanagan by his bosses before he was fired told him to change his behaviour and also advised him to seek psychological help. This is a mandatory referral requiring your compliance, one message from Dan Dennison said. He was WDBJ's news director. Failure to comply will result in termination of employment. According to his own LinkedIn account, Flanagan had worked in several positions in customer service and had a degree in broadcast media from San Francisco State University. He also worked for California's KPIX TV in the early 90s. In 2013, he filed a lawsuit against WDBJ alleging discrimination by the whole station, naming most of the staff in his complaint. The case was dismissed by a judge in July 2014. He also sued a Florida TV station in 2000 after he was fired, a case that was also dismissed the next year. A local paper said he had also alleged racial discrimination on that occasion. Don Schaefer hired Flanagan at WTWC and said he was a good on-air performer, a pretty good reporter, but then things started getting a little strange. He was subsequently fired the same year for, quote, odd behaviour. However, one woman who worked with him at a TV station in Savannah, Georgia, in the 1990s remembered him as a good guy who often joked with other staff. Tarsia Bush, then also at WTOC-TV, said Flanagan was such a mild-mannered guy. That guy that did this is not the guy that I knew. A tribute posted to the WDBJ website shortly after the shooting said, Alison Parker and Adam Ward were really just starting their careers. Both of them had big plans and bright futures. Regular viewers of Morning had a good sense of what kind of people they were. From Alison's work in front of the camera and Adam's interactions with the morning crew, behind the camera and on the air. Alison was smart and ambitious. Adam was a capable photographer who would go the extra mile to get the job done. And they had a lot in common, they worked together every morning. Both Alison and Adam were natives of this area. Alison grew up in Martinsville, Adam in Salem. Alison was a graduate of Martinsville High School and James Madison University. Adam attended Salem High School where he played football. He was a Virginia Tech graduate and a huge Hokies fan. And both of them worked as interns here at WDBJ before they signed on as employees. Alison worked at a station in Jacksonville, North Carolina, before she returned to WDBJ in 2014. 
Adam had been here for four years, first as an employee of our production department and more recently as a photographer in news. He and Alison had been working together on WDBJ's morning show for almost a year, covering everything from community events to breaking news, and they did it well, and both of them had fallen in love with co-workers. Adam was engaged to our morning producer Melissa Ott, they were planning their wedding, Alison and our six o'clock news anchor Chris Hurst were dating. We are shattered by the news this morning and our hearts go out to the family and friends of Alison Parker and Adam Ward. And I do remember seeing scenes online of Alison and Adam's morning show colleagues holding hands and praying in the studio in the days that followed their murders. And I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for them to just get back to work straight away. Um, It does remind me of the murder of Jill Dando, that difficult first show that Nick Ross would have had to present without his co-host clearly grieving for the loss of his colleague and friend, but bravely facing the camera to pay tribute to her as his voice croaked with raw grief. Thank you for listening. Another tough episode. And someone did get in touch recently to say, I do seem to gravitate towards the more disturbing cases. And I think they're right. And it got me thinking. So much so that I've written a blog post for Adam over at the UK True Crime Podcast uh, in which I discuss the impact of being a true crime podcaster on my mental health. Please do check it out. You can find it at uktruecrime.com slash blog. Uh, Let me know your thoughts as ever. Um, You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, I will see you then. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.